Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Don Boudreau, Chair of the Economics Department at George Mason University. Don, welcome back to Econ Talk. Great to be here as always. Our topic today is the Austrian view of business cycles and of macroeconomics generally. Don, what's a nice microeconomist like you doing in a place like this? What, what does a micro have to do with macro after all? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I believe, and I think all right-thinking economists understand that there is only one kind of economics. It's microeconomics. And as my former teacher from Auburn University, Roger Garrison, himself a well-known monetary macro uh, economist, often says, says that all economics is, is microeconomics. Uh, there are just different questions we ask, and some of those questions are classified as, as macro. For example, what causes inflation, what causes uh, sustained unemployment. Those are, macro, those are questions we conventionally classify as macroeconomic ones. But to understand them, we, have to, uh, we, we shouldn't ever depart from the microanalytics, the, the micro-understanding that we have about the way people respond to incentives and about the way markets equilibrate or disequilibrate and, and, and you know, theories of creative destruction and, uh, 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 and those matters. There are questions that we classify conventionally in one way or another, but all economics is microeconomics. You were talking before we get started taping about what a strange historical episode we find ourselves in the middle of. Yeah, I, it, um, you know, I am a microeconomist. My original, when, when I was an undergraduate, my my chief interest uh, after I, you know, be, was attracted to economics, when I was a you know junior and senior, my chief interest was was reading monetary theory and, and macroeconomics, and I quickly got away from that because it was really hard. It's hard stuff. It's difficult yeah. stuff dealing with these kinds of questions, and so for reasons that I can't quite recollect, I became interested in antitrust economics. It was very conventionally microeconomic topic. And I spent a long time doing antitrust economics, and you know, in recent years I've gotten into international trade issues, which are, I'm still fascinated with and, and enjoy talking about. Um, but, you know, because of the current financial mess, this is April of you know, 2009, the past year or so I have been thinking more and more about these questions that fascinated me 30 years ago, you know, the, the role of money, uh, the the you know what does what does the term aggregate demand mean or not mean? Uh, what is the proper role of fiscal stimulus versus uh, monetary po- policy? These questions are ones that I'm I'm returning to. But you know we should tell I should say right here at the beginning of the podcast I am not a trained uh, uh, or in any way accomplished macroeconomist in the conventional sense. I'm not a microeconomist, but I, but nevertheless I think that because all economics is micro. Any decent microeconomist, and my vanity compels me to classify myself in that way, any decent enough microeconomist ought to be able to think about these issues and make some headway in getting some understanding. At the same time, though, being aware that he or she uh, doesn't have the uh, depth of knowledge of the literature uh, and the economic history that trained macroeconomists have. I have the same feeling about the current situation. I hadn't thought about macro for 20 years, and I've never thought about finance. Uh, it was an area I had no interest in, and uh, for better or for worse, I find myself reading uh, compulsively in both areas. Uh, and uh, it's taken a toll. You know, hey, I have some of the things I'd like to read about, but I can't help myself yeah. or think about it, even more importantly, or spend my time doing. But uh, if you want to have uh, anything to contribute to the discussion, You've got to reinvest in those things, but I find it's not even a strategic choice. Just as you say, you just find yourself starting to think about these things again in ways you hadn't since, for me, since I was in graduate school. I think it's no coincidence that that uh, the 1930s in economics is considered to be, you know, one of the most fruitful decades uh, of all for the advance, at least the change, and I would say advance in economic theory. Not only in macro, obviously, when you had 
you know, first uh, Hayek with his theory of macroeconomy, and then later the very different theory of John Maynard Keynes, uh, but also great advances in in uh, uh, public goods theory, great advances in theory of competition with with Chamberlain and and Robinson. These are the that decade are the years that uh, G. L. S. Shackle called the years of high theory, uh, and I I think in part because it's because the economy was front and center, you know, deep and real economic problems were front and center on people's mind. They weren't theoretical abstractions. Yeah. And uh, economists felt, I think, maybe a little bit more energized than they normally do to look at the real world, try to grasp it, and explain uh, how it works and why it dysfunctions. Yeah, well, it'll, Malfunctions. Be, inter- it'll be interesting to see how this these times affect economics. Uh, a lot of people are wondering, well, you know, what's going to be different in the classroom? What's going to be different in the textbooks? And, of course, not much is changing at this uh, yet, but uh, I suspect it will. Can I say a word about the micro-macro distinction yeah, that you ahead. raised at the beginning? Yeah. Um, when I first returned to GMU back in 2001, our colleague Dick Wagner and I were talking, and I'm not sure what prompted Dick to make the comment, but he said, you know, he said, you know, the traditional, the, the familiar distinction between microeconomics and macroeconomics that people understand today, where macroeconomics is about employment and, 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 and money supply and inflation rates, and microeconomics is about consumer behavior and firm behavior, he says, that wasn't the original meaning of the distinction. The original meaning, or at least the one that, that uh, uh, Dick likes and that he conveyed to me, uh, I think is much more makes much more sense and is much more scientifically well-grounded. And it's a distinction that is traced back to the Swedish economist Eric Lindahl, who I think died sometime around 1946 or so. And Lindahl uh, said microeconomics is the, the, that branch of our discipline that l- examines how individuals respond to incentives. I think Gary Becker in this case would be like the, the premier living microeconomist. What happens when the value of time, for example, rises? How do people reallocate the way they spend their time? Macroeconomics, under Lindahl's distinction uh, between the two terms, is that branch of our discipline that examines how all these microeconomic decisions hang together. And so the question of, for example, how the pencil comes about. Leonard Reed's famous like pencil story that Milton Friedman popularized. That would be a macroeconomic issue. H- how is it that you know, the, the, the lumberjacks and the people who mine for graphite and all these millions of other people whose efforts are necessary to make an ordinary commercial grade pencil, how is it they all hang together? How does the price system coordinate their efforts? That's a macroeconomic issue. Tracing out the unintended consequences uh, of, of individual decisions, Where, whereas microeconomics in this, recall, in, in this distinction um, has very little to do with unintended consequences. It just says, okay, given what we know about the way humans uh, uh, are motivated, uh, how, will humans, how, how, will, how will people react when the constraints that they face, the costs and the benefits they face change? And I think that's a really important, that's a really nice way to think about microeconomics versus macroeconomics. And I, we'll come back to this later, I hope, at the end of our conversation. But one way to think about that is the um, it's a coordination problem. Yeah. And, and there are different kinds of coordination problems. There's a coordination problem of producing a pencil. There's the coordination problem of, of a labor market or the, how the money supply runs through a whole economy. And what, what's interesting about that distinction is that it took me way too long to really understand, and I probably don't still f- grasp it fully, to fully understand the relationship between what Lindahl would call the macroeconomic problem of producing a pencil with what is traditionally called the microeconomic market for pencils. Yeah. And so we teach through this artificial convention – uh, the microeconomics of the pencil market is the price of a pencil emerges from supply and demand, say, would be one easy way that that gets taught. And how that then is – how those markets that create the pencil, the graphite, the aluminum, the uh, cedar, the lacquer of the pencil, et cetera, and all the complicated labor market interactions, 
we don't really talk about that in micro, I think, tragically. And we certainly don't talk about it in macro. We then go yeah. in macro, in traditional macro, we go up to the next level. How do all the different markets for pencils, graphite, cedar, da 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 aggregate and coordinate? And uh, there's that missing in between, which is really uh, the Hayekian spontaneous order, which is really the most marvelous part, to use Hayek's word, uh, version of Hayek's and word. And we spend very little time talking about it. That's a very good way to yeah. put it. First of all, um, I, I, I like what you say about the coordination thing. Macroeconomics in Lindahl's, I think, better uh, distinction between two terms. Macroeconomics is about – it explains the, how coordination takes place and by virtue of that helps us understand uh, why coordination might break down. Microeconomics is as conventionally understood, say as Gary Becker does it, as important as it is. It's not about that kind of coordination. It may be necessary, in fact, it probably is, I'm sure it is, it's necessary to understand the larger pattern of coordination and how they emerge, the logic of that coordination, but it's not about the coordination. But I disagree with you, I think, about uh, when you said we went, we go to the next level in traditional macroeconomics. I don't, th again, I, I preface this, I'm not a specialist in traditional macroeconomics, but I don't see there being a whole lot of attention in traditional macroeconomics played to co uh, being paid to coordination. Uh, traditional macroeconomics is about uh, um, aggregates. It's about yeah, aggregate well, demand. Let's and you come get, back to okay. that. Let's come back to that because I think uh, we're going to talk later in the conversation about these aggregate issues. But we do talk about the labor market or the investment of the nation and, and implicitly I think in the back of people's minds when they talk about that they have in mind that there's a lot of different things going on that interact with each other and that, that's the level at which I meant it. Okay. Um, in the Austrian view, what is uh, – what's the cause of, of the business cycle? The cause of the business cycle is the system-wide disruption in the pattern of relative prices. That's the most general way to say it. This is one thing I like about the Austrian view. I'll give you a more specific uh, version in a moment. But the Austrians say, look, uh, resources don't coordinate automatically. And when, when consumers and entrepreneurs and investors uh, respond to market signals in ways that lead to coordination, they do, th they, they do so chiefly through nominal prices. It's nominal prices that direct entrepreneurs to shift resources from one activity to another activity. That tell when, when prices rise, consumers uh, cut back on consuming the now higher priced goods, and they substitute into now relatively lower priced goods and services. And so, entrepreneurs, consumers, and investors don't look out in the real world and see the real. Uh, underlying economic phenomena, the, their window to that real underlying economic phenomena is the pattern of relative prices. Now, it's, it's not a window, it, it, it's, a, it's a cloudy window in a sense that, that you know, you, you're just responding to prices and you could toss in expectations to, or the expectations of what future prices will be. Um, and the Austrians say, if if something happened, to the extent that, 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 that the pattern of relative prices, the price of apples relative to pears, the price of automobiles relative to housing, to the extent that these things reflect as accurately as possible the underlying economic reality, the real economy, people's consumers' preferences, uh, resource constraints, technology. Cost of production. Yeah then the economy is going to work pretty well. N not ideally, of course, but it's, going to, but it's going to work pretty well. There's no reason to believe that there will be, that there will be any systematic uh, problems in the economy. This market might rise today. This market might fall. Uh, there will be these little frictions and problems, but no system-wide um, decline or problems, major problems in the economy. But if those relative prices get out of whack in a significant way, then consumers and entrepreneurs and investors, they respond to those now out of whack relative prices in the same way that they would if the changes in relative prices 
were uh, caused by changes in the real underlying factors. Um, and the money supply is the single largest uh, force in an economy that can cause relative prices to become systematically distorted, out of whack with each other. So, for example, if the money supply, I'll give you this example, if, if, if uh, the, 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 the person who controls the money supply, the agency who controls the money supply, uh, decides to inject a few more billions of dollars into the economy, and let's say that, that he gives those billions of dollars to people who happen to have an especially high demand or, or, or strong demand for apples. People just, apple lovers get this money first. Well, Apple, app, excuse me, these people who get the money, they're better off. Because now they have this, this newly printed money from, from the monetary authority. They have an especially high demand for apples. They spend their money on apples. That drives up the price of apples. And uh, entrepreneurs see that. They say, oh, the price of apples is rising relative to the price of pears and relative to the price of kumquats, relative to the price of cell phones. So resources at the margin shift out of these other things and into apple production. Because people are responding to prices. It looks like there's been an, an underlying change in economic reality. And so as resources shift from these other occupation, uh, other uh, 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 uses into apple production, um, more apples get produced, less of these other things get produced. Uh, but of course, the real underlying economy hasn't changed. As soon as this money stops coming from the monetary authority, uh, the, the old pattern of Apple demand relative to pear demand, kumquat demand, cell phone demand, it'll restore itself because now the, app, the people who like apples are not recipients of this newly created money. When that new pattern of relative prices establishes itself at a higher price level, but that's kind of irrelevant. When that new pattern of relative prices establishes itself, entrepreneurs realize that, hey, we, we've invested too much in apple production. So that, that apple market has to slough off some of the extra uh, – all of the extra uh, uh, production capacity that it developed. And that takes time. And when, when in time that it takes for the resources to move out of Apple production back into where they truly better belong at the margin, that's the economic downturn. Now, that economic downturn can have, it can have the, uh, secondary effects. As, 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 as these workers lose their jobs, they do become a little bit less uh, optimistic about the future because they are more uncertain about it, so they may reduce their spending. And so something that is plausibly called aggregate demand might fall, and that might have a, f a, s a further depressing effect on the overall economy. But the cause of the, th the main cause of the economic downturn in the Austrian view is the uh, artificial boom created by the monetary expansion, which cause one sector to expand relative to other sectors and the inevitable bust where the resources have to flow back out into where they belong. Now, in a more specific way, what, what Austrians focused on from the time of, of Mises and Hayek was one particular price, and that is the, the, the price of time, interest, the interest rate. Because in practice... When the money supply is increased, it's done so through the banking system by central bankers. Banks make money by lending out, uh, you know, make profits by lending out money. The banking system gets more money from the um, monetary authority, newly created money. That causes the nominal rate of interest to fall. As the nominal rate of interest falls, entrepreneurs say, oh, wow, nominal, rate, nominal rates of interest have fallen. Uh, investments that at the higher rate of interest were not profitable are now profitable. And so resources shift from um, uh, that pattern uh, that existed prior to the reduction in the rate of interest to a new pattern, a more capital-intensive pattern. More investment uh, relative to consumption. More, not only more investment relative to consumption, but different kinds of investment relative to consumption. It... it, it this is an important this is an important point you know, in, in Austrian theory, and it's one that's very difficult to explain, particularly for someone like me who's not an expert in it really. Um, but I know it's I know it enough to know it's important. But so not only more investment, but different kinds of investment. Uh, but 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 put the different kinds uh, aspect aside for now. So the interest rate 
fall, not only interest rate, interest rate falls, entrepreneurs and investors respond to it in the same way they would if, in fact, income earners had decided to save more. Their savings preference had increased or their time preference had decreased. Um, but the, the, in fact, savings preferences haven't increased. Time preferences hasn't, haven't, haven't uh, uh, decreased. And so uh, it turns out we have too much investment taking place and too much investment taking place in ways that, that ought not occur. As soon as the monetary authority stops injecting the money, uh, then investors realize, oh, the real rate of interest, in fact, isn't as low as I, th- I thought it was. It's, 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 it's as high as it was before. And so these investment plans that we made based upon the what we know now to be the artificially low rate of interest, those, many of those investment plans are not sustainable. And so the, those investment plans have to be undone, and the resources tied up in those investment plans have to be released. And that's the, the, that releasing of the resources uh, uh, it, and, and the, the time it takes for those resources to find their way back into more viable economic arrangements, that's the bust that follows the investment boom created by uh, artificial money creation. Now, in the, it's funny, you start off with the apple lovers, and I, my first thought was, you know, in the, in the traditional monetary m- monetarism theory of, of inflation, uh, there's not a lot of attention paid to the mechanism and who gets the money first. In fact, when you read in, in textbooks or uh, in your hearing in the classroom, it's often suppose you woke up one morning, you had twice as much money in your wallet as you had the day before. Or suppose a helicopter dropped money that doubled the amount of money in the economy. And of course, that's one useful simplification to understand the effect of an increase in money on the overall price level. What what you're saying about the Austrian theory is that the Austrian theory is going to try to look at, in fact, what really actually happens because it doesn't go to apple lovers either, of course. It goes to some – it goes to the banks first Mm -hmm. and who the banks lend it to you would think would be on average not apple lovers or any kind of lovers, just – wouldn't, you wouldn't expect there to be an impact on any one sector that would be particularly disproportionate. But, but if I understand what you're saying correctly, you're saying, well, there is one sector, and that's the sector of people who want to uh, look to the future and who are now encouraged to reduce their consumption, expand their investment, which normally we think would be a good thing. But since it can't be sustained, it's the correction itself that leads to the dislocations that we call a recession. Is that a correct summary? Yeah. Yeah. Critical to the Austrian theory is Austrian theory of capital, um, dating back to uh, Bombavark with his, uh, you know, the explanation of you know roundabout theories of of production, and the Austrian capital theory is one that takes uh, the the specifics of production plans and what the Austrians call the capital structure very seriously. Capital is just not K, as economists talk about it. Well, we have K uh, out, out there. We, it, the, the, the way uh, production plans hang together is important. It's not a timeless um, seamless. occurrence. Seamless occurrence. It's, it's if, if you know, you, you uh, buy, you tie up real resources in creating this kind of machine that can't really do anything else except do what you plan for it to do. Uh, and that machine is going to coordinate with these other kinds of workers who become trained in how to operate this machine. And you undertake these production plans, uh, not all of which are, in fact, none of which are completed instantaneously. They all take time to complete. Some take more time to complete than others. Uh, and that, the, the very specific nature of capital is something that Austrians focus on uh, when they do their macroeconomic theory. And it's impossible, I believe, to appreciate the, the 
insights of the Austrian theory without at the same time understanding that Austrians uh, take, take the specifics of the capital structure very seriously, without understanding that the Austrians understand that uh, capital goods and services are structured together in very nuanced, specific, to use a popular word now, granular ways. And if there's if 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 this arrangement, if these these very detailed, precise arrangements don't work out, prove not to be profitable in the long run, then that capital structure will be re- rearranged. It's not just that it will be reduced in size. It's not just that K falls. Austrians aren't just saying that. Well, when the when the when the nominal rate of interest falls below the real rate of interest, or what Vixel called the natural rate of interest, it's not just that K rises artificially. It's that the structure of K changes fundamentally, or it changes, and getting K back into the right structure, getting all the all the pieces of this very elaborate puzzle back into a pattern that fit together in a way that not only works technologically, but works to, to enable the owners of, these, of this capital to enjoy uh, uh, you know, at least a normal level of profits for a considerable period of time. Only when that happens is the, is the, is the capital structure in line with underlying consumer preferences, including the preferences of, of income earners to save as compared to spend today. But those kind of disruptions happen all the time and without monetary disruption, right? So an entrepreneur starts a business, builds a factory, starts producing a good in expectation or at least hope that someone's going to buy it, turns out to be wrong. Uh, then that K, that capital that's in that factory, is going to have to be um, reallocated. And I th- one understanding of what you're saying is that it, it doesn't get reallocated. Uh, one one man's K is another man's poison, you know, or uselessness. Giving, you know, I have an assembly line that produces pencils, and if pencils go out of fashion and fountain pens or ballpoint pens come along, I'm going to have to cut back on my resources that are going into pencil production, and I've got an assembly line for pencils that's machinery that's not going to be terribly useful doing anything else. Now, of course, I can melt it down for scrap, and that, that would be one thing I could do, but that obviously would be an extraordinarily expensive and costly way to to deal with it. But that, that presumably has happened all the time in a, reg, in a yes. dynamic economy. Yes. The difference is that uh, it, it, it does happen. It will always happen in a dynamic economy. And the you know obviously the individuals in those particular cases they 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 suffer just as much as they would if you know, if it were system wide, and so a theory of how these this kind of downturn happens system wide is necessary, and Hayek put his he emphasized uh, the role of money. Money is 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 system wide. And he speculated, he, he argued, not, he theorized that, okay, yes, he, he, he explicitly understood that these, at the individual level, mistakes are always being made. But also, you know, there, there, there are other places in the economy where great successes are occurring. So these kind of tend to, to, to wash each other out. Right? Uh, because money is system-wide, uh, and the banking system is system wide if the money supply is increased then interest rates system wide tend to fall and that creates a system wide uh, distortion in investment and because it's a system wide distortion in investment when that distortion is finally revealed as being a distortion when it's finally understood at some level that the nominal rate of interest was lying to investors. The nominal rate of interest was lower than was consistent with the true savings preferences of, of people in the economy. Uh, when that is finally, when that fact is finally revealed, then we get this system-wide need to restructure uh, 
capital and the employment that accompanies the capital structure. Of course, there's going to be less economic economic activity overall, which is going to make it harder to restructure, harder to reallocate, because mm-hmm. everyone's trying to do it at the same time. Um, l- let's put this in a little bit of historical context, and I just want to say uh, parenthetically to listeners who have sometime a- sometimes emailed me and asked me why I'm such a big fan of Hayek in microeconomics and don't uh, give him much due on – business cycle theory. And the simple answer is, I don't know much about it, which is one of the reasons we're having this conversation. Um, I read Hayek as a microeconomist in graduate school. Uh, we'd never heard of Hayek or Mises or the Austrian business cycle where I went, went to graduate school at the University of Chicago. And this was in the mid-70s. So the Austrian view of business cycle theory really dropped off the map. And of course, one reason, uh, you could argue one reason was the Great Depression. But, of course, there was another reason, which was a proliferation of alternative theories that presumably people found more persuasive or at least were maybe marketed better. Uh, reading the general theory by John Maynard Keynes, it's, it's difficult to figure out exactly what, what he meant. So that's why I throw in that cheap shot about marketing, which is a cheap shot. But it is part of the story that, that a lot of the macroeconomic efforts of the 30s, and I would include uh, Schumpeter's business cycle theory, which I have not read and I think was his masterwork. It's a massive volume on business cycles came out. I want to say in the in 1939, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So that is evidently an extremely difficult uh, book to read systematically or to understand in a systematic way. So we have these these attempts, and and the marketplace of ideas. Uh, Keynes triumphed as the best way to understand what caused business cycles, and the Austrian school, which was I think. Correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, I think was the major alternative of its day, yes. went into uh, a, a deep hibernation. Uh, Milton Friedman's view, the monetarist view, which was the real counterpoint to the Keynesian view, has elements of this conversation in it, right? What Friedman talks about is how nominal prices mislead, right? That, that you can have inflation, but the entrepreneur doesn't realize that it's System-wide, the, the entrepreneur looks at the price or the, the, the manager looks at the price of, of the product that, that the manager knows the most about, doesn't know all the other prices, is imperfect information, and is then falsely led into expanding in the response potentially because it appears to be an increase in demand. Um, and then there is a response to, to uh, unravel that when the prices start to fall and the money, money supply comes down. So Friedman – in a somewhat Austrian way, although he probably never thought of it, maybe didn't, I don't think he thought of it this way, Friedman always argued for a steady growth in the money supply rather than erratic fine-tuning, which is more of what we have had since 1913 with the Federal Reserve. Uh, Friedman argued that we should have a steady growth in the money supply roughly equal to the rate of productivity. That would lead to a stable price level, and that would then lead to allowing people to make plans – uh, consistent with with the real underlying variable. So in that sense, am I correct in saying that Friedman and the Austrians at least saw eye to eye on that issue? Yes and no, but I think mostly no. Um, you know, as a policy matter, Austrians, like most people, would argue that you know a, a steady uh, change in the money supply is better than an erratic change in the money supply, keeping inflation. Uh, low or even at zero rate is is better than having high rates of inflation. High or uh, but high followed by low followed uh, by yeah, high. Yeah, that's right. But the the I think the differences between Friedman and the Austrians are greater than those that exist between Friedman and monetarists and the Keynesians. Uh, here's some similarities. So first before we get before we get to the differences, uh, monetarists. Uh, like Austrians, have a greater appreciation for the ability of markets to coordinate uh, than do the Keynesians. Monetarists and Austrians aren't so worried as are the Keynesians about uh, price stickiness downward. Um, And I I think that Friedman and and Austrians in this case have the better better argument uh, over time than the Keynesians do. But what the monetarists and the Keynesians share is a focus on aggregates. 
And so when Friedman talks about, uh, in, in the when he does his macroeconomics, he's talking about the price level. And it's, 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 in some sense, it's, it's, un, it's correct that, that if you anticipate uh, a 10% rate of inflation and you're thinking of lending money to someone, you want at least a 3% real rate of return, then, okay, you're going to look at those, that nominal price and you think, well, it's going to rise 10% over the year, so I'm going to ask 13% in my, in my loan contract to, from the person to whom I'm going to lend the money. Um, but F Friedman in his macroeconomics, doesn't, un unlike the Austrians, he doesn't focus on the way difference, differences in individual prices in markets can cause distortions in resource allocations and how those distortions in resource allocations in individual markets can lead to general macroeconomic um, downturns, uh, particularly the, the interest rate. Um, I don't. I don't know if this is true. So I don't want. I, I'm a big fan of Friedman. I admire Friedman, Milton Friedman, on a lot of, a lot of, uh, in a lot of dimensions. Um, but scholars who are more versed in macroeconomics than I am say that Milton Friedman, like the Austrians, he had no real capital theory. Capital theory for Friedman was a K. I think that's true. Yeah, and so if capital theory for Friedman is a K. Then, well, maybe K, you know, will increase a little bit too much if nominal interest rates fall below the natural rate, or vice versa. But when you just look at it as K, this big glob, then a glob, you know, rearranging a glob to, from its suboptimal shape into a more optimal shape—that's that's easier than rearranging uh, very hard and specific and fixed capital forms into different forms because it takes more time uh, to, to change fixed forms into other fixed forms than it does to change a glob f from one shape into another another shape. Yeah, well, let me make a methodological point here. And I, you know, we could spend, this could take us down a lot of different roads, but I think it's important to mention. The theory is always simplifying. So yes. aggregation is by definition a simplification. If you don't like the theory, you're going to say, well, it's, too, it's oversimplified. But every theory is simplified, no matter how subtle your, um, your model is of, of, say, K, of capital being different. Um, labor, obviously, is not an aggregate. And I think, is it not, just to defend Milton here for a minute, is it not sufficient to say that it's going to be hard to reallocate K and L, capital and labor, if it's been artificially increased and encouraged by price signals from the from the say the Fed and the money supply. And the fact that, okay, yeah, it's true, it's going to even be more complicated if you think about it as in the disaggregated form it actually is in the real world, that there are different types of K and every labor is not an aggregate at all. It's bound up in individuals. I mean, what's the big deal? Why should I care? What am I missing? In other words, what subtlety do I miss when I make that aggregation? Because that would be the relevant question. It, it's not yeah. it's not real it's not realistic. Yeah. Everybody agrees with that. Friedman would accept it immediately. Yeah. He would say, I don't, "It doesn't matter that it's unrealistic. It gets at the essential fundamental point that when the money supply grows too fast, there's an artificial expansion that can't be sustained." Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm being if that's accurate, I think it's accurate. Yeah. Well, well first, obviously, I mean, any you cannot theorize without simplifying, and the distinction between a good theorist and a poor theorist is one who has the wisdom to know what to what to abstract away from given the questions that that person seeks to answer or issues that person seeks to understand. Um, just because all theory requires simplification does not mean, therefore, that all simplification is consistent with good theorizing. Correct. Right. And I would argue, and, and let, me, let me preface this, Milton Friedman is, was far and away a much better theorist than I am. And I don't say that's obviously not false modesty. The man was brilliant. I'm not. Gr much better understanding of the economy than I have. So what I'm about to say might sound a little bit arrogant. But I'll say it anyway. So I, I do think that to the extent that Friedman and anyone else who abstracted away from the uh, nuances of the capital structure, who abstracted away from the difficulties of not only increasing or decreasing size of the capital structure, no matter how measured, whether measured in monetary terms or whether measured in some kind of you know, physical way, to abstract away from 
the the uh, issues involved in how that capitals how that very specific how the very specific many pieces of capital fit together in production plans uh, is to abstract away from what strikes me to be at least a potentially vital part of the way economic coordination takes place over time. And if that's right, then when you get these distortions in the capital structure caused by whatever, you know, Hayek would argue again, by, by, by distortions in the, in the nominal rate of interest, then to abstract away from the structure of capital is to abstract away from a, a potentially important explanatory variable. Okay, and, so let me let me give you a harder time on a different harder time on a different aspect of this. Um, you and I both agree on the value of the Schumpeterian uh, concept of competition and creative destruction. So we talk about how. Uh, when a new product comes along or uh, an innovation comes along or an improvement, that, that puts competitive pressure on a bunch of substitutes for that good. Uh, some of them are going to rise to the occasion and, and meet the competition. Others are going to just fail. They're not going to be able to innovate. They're going to be – or sufficiently, they're going to fail. And those resources are going to be unemployed. And we marvel at a separate kind of marvel – the dynamic nature of a modern and even not so modern competitive economy going back maybe in the last 50, 100 years, if we call that modern, where we don't worry about uh, individual changes. Individual changes. And you have spoken, you know, I've learned a great deal from you about how to think about these issues at, at, at an individual market level. And I, I like the example, and I think I got it from you, of you know, some people – I use it in my, in my book, The Price of Everything. Some people decide they want to be healthier. So they want uh, particular types of food and they want certain types of exercise equipment. And nobody has to uh, plan that. Nobody sends a memo um, to the authorities saying they're, they're going to start eating, say, more vegetarian food, less meat, uh, more organic food, whether it's healthy or not. That's what they want. They're going to exercise more. They want a certain kind of shoe. They, all this stuff takes place without uh, top-down direction, and we we don't minimize or ignore the fact that some people are going to be harmed by this. Um, the person, you know, the, the person who makes the uh, the high-fat ice cream, the potato chip maker, the uh, manufacturer of couches that are really comfortable to watch TV from. All these folks are going to struggle, mm -hmm. and we paint a very, I think, relatively rosy picture yeah. of how that dynamism plays out in the marketplace, that that as more people want these healthier foods or want to exercise more, resources flow out of yeah. the sectors that have been struck – that are no longer in demand, and a new allocation of capital and labor occurs. And I think we're kind of cheating, or I'm going to challenge you to – respond to this possibility. We're kind of cheating because we certainly – we don't worry about the fact that making, say, high-end luxury heavy fat ice cream, that the people who are really good at that aren't really good at making organic soybeans and therefore – or tofu and that therefore there's going to be this big disruption. And in fact, the, the economy seems to absorb those kind of changes in people's preferences all the time. And relatively painlessly, not, not painlessly, but relatively painlessly. We don't need government to coordinate that that change in, in preferences. So, how does that fit in with the Aust? That's a very Austrian story, right? Literally, it's from Schumpeter, who was an Austrian. But but it it seems to conflict with the business cycle story. And I, this is a question I asked earlier. I'm asking now. I hope in a more interesting way. Yeah, um, I, I think that is an important point, and I think it is a challenge that that. Uh, Persons and I, I would count myself among them, although with some qualifications. Persons who who defend or, or, or who who support the who believe in the, that there is a lot of explanatory value to the Austrian theory of the business cycle haven't yet met. There is that there is that tension, um, and I, I agree it's there. Uh, the the first response I have is that the again the, the, Aust the Austrian theory focuses on uh, 
as a practical matter, the system-wide distortion caused by mo money growth bringing the, real, the nominal rate of inflation, excuse me, nominal rate of interest beneath the natural rate, beneath the rate that would exist if the money supply had not distorted the interest rate. And so this is a distortion that works its way throughout the entire economy, or pretty much the entire economy, not just in one sector. Right. So when you have the entire economy, or virtually all of the economy, having to contract once it's revealed that the that investment has been not only too great, but but done in ways that that are inconsistent with underlying preferences, then you don't have, you know, you can't assume that there are parts of the economy that are growing to absorb some resources and from those parts that are declining. You have, you have a system-wide distortion. Having said that, um, you're exactly right, and I, I, don't, have, I don't have time now. I don't, I don't have an answer, but I agree that there is an inconsistency in saying, oh, well, look, you know, when workers get uh, laid off from, or resources more generally, get moved from industries where uh, consumers once demanded a lot of output from these industries and where they now demand less, no need to worry because, you know, the economy sort of rearranges those resources and everything goes along just fine. That, that, that's what we talk about when we talk about uh, why we shouldn't worry about changes in technology, why we shouldn't worry about changes in trade patterns, whether they be domestic trade patterns or patterns across national borders. Um, inconsistency between that rather rosy story, as you describe it, and uh, the this Austrian story saying, well, when when uh, in certain industries decline or certain types of production, manners of production, modes of production uh, are cut back, rearranged, then it takes uh, you know time and is very painful for these resources to to find other alternatives. I, I do think the system wide nature of the distortions identified by Austrians goes a long way. To explaining why there are these perceived differences, you know, but 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 nevertheless, I I think that to think about it. I, I I I do think we haven't. I think we've been a little bit too cavalier in when telling the f the the first story about say changes in trade patterns. Say, oh, no need to worry. You know, the law work itself out. Yeah, and I think the other area where I worry about my o overconfidence in that dynamism is less developed labor markets, uh, say in in poorer countries in the United States. It might be not as dynamic. May not be as dynamic. There may be less information in those economies. There may be less communication across space and time. And and to expect those economies to rearrange themselves as effortlessly as ours does often in the face of those changes may be overly optimistic. In those situations, the specific specificity of capital and labor may be more important. And just an interesting area to, yeah. to think about. I, I want to go back. I want to make. One more historical point, and then I want to close with a discussion of of um, uh, the point you made in a recent column that I, that I want to make sure we talk about. You know, I, I alluded to the fact that that the Austrian theory um, lost the intellectual battle to the Keynesians and then the monetarists, and they're clearly they're coming back. Um, the, the work of Hayek and Mises and others in explaining the current mess we're in is is probably. There's probably never been more interest than, than – and there hasn't been more such interest in a long, long time. And obviously, I'm having this conversation with you because even though I didn't know much about it and assumed I could dismiss it, I'm think, starting to think, you know, maybe maybe I was wrong. Maybe there's more to think about here. But I, I want to raise a different possibility. I think if you asked somebody in the 1960s or 1970s or 1980s into the 90s, you know, for 50 years – Austrian macroeconomics was a backwater in terms of main, the mainstream. The mainstream didn't pay any attention to it. As I said, we didn't learn it in graduate school. I didn't learn it in graduate school because of where I went. And the standard answer, if you confronted a professor at, at, a, at a standard, I think, graduate program in, in macroeconomics and said, why aren't we reading Hayek on the business cycle or Mises or Baumwerk? And they would say, well, they were wrong. Mm -hmm. The, they couldn't explain the Great Depression. They couldn't explain their, – their models don't work as well. I think there's a possibility, and I, again, I, since I don't know the literature very well, uh, but, but I know something about um, methodology, I, I, I want to come back to this point I made about marketing. The Austrian cycle, uh, business cycle theory stuff doesn't lend itself, I suspect, as well to the modern tools 
of academic scholarship as uh, some other models do. And actually, Keynes doesn't lend himself to those tools either. Keynes, if Alvin Hansen and, and I think Hicks, if, if I'm right, if I remember correctly, who helped Keynes's work be popularized through ISLM, those of you out there who've taken an undergraduate macroeconomics class have certainly seen the ISLM curves, uh, which is a wonderful way to help uh, give exams in macroeconomics. Sir John Hicks's excursion into Islamic art, as Ludwig Lachmann described. It. Is that yeah. yeah? So, so we've got this this elaborate apparatus called ISLM, and it's been sometimes the way I was taught it was actually a little more interesting. It was then appended to a aggregate supply and demand curve, which actually put some real constraints from the economy o over ISLM. But the way most people are taught at the undergraduate level, it's it's a uh, it is touted as a form of Keynesian economics. Of course, there's nothing in ISLM, there's nothing in Keynes that has ISLM in it. If Keynes had written that book in 1936 uh, and people hadn't come along and tried to squeeze it and wedge it into a more uh, textbook-friendly and equation-friendly framework – I wonder if it too would have struggled to keep its place in intellectual history. It's just a. That's a real. Yeah, this is you know a, a lot of things to say about that. And first, first of all, Keynes in a 1937 article in the uh, QJE Quarterly Journal of Economics, uh, he, one of the top three or four journals in the field, maybe three at the time. I think it was his 37 maybe, article. Yeah. He uh, in some subsequent article after the, he published General Theory, he. Uh, explicitly acknowledged uh, John Hicks's ISLM apparatus as being consistent with what, with what he was trying to get across. But John Hicks himself, before he died, abandoned it. Said, "Nope, this is really not a good way to think about the economy." Second thing to say is, yeah, there is an industry that's still going on in what Keynes meant, and there's no industry going on in what Marshall meant and what Adam Smith meant. I mean, a little bit, right? But, but. Keynes, who was famous as a very clear and good stylist, the general theory is a muddle. It's, it's an awful read, and I've read it carefully. Uh, a man who was so skilled at conveying his thoughts with pen and paper should have uh, – the, the fact that, that the general theory itself is, such, is, is not very clear suggests, I think pretty strongly, that the ideas that Keynes himself – was, was trying to get across. They were not very well worked out in his own mind. Um, and so to this day, you know, we have, you know, you, you, I suspect if we have 10 Keynesians in this room, you have at least nine, perhaps 11 um, different views of what Keynes meant to say. Uh, well, he's writing it, you know, he's writing it in 1936 when unemployment worldwide was a, was a nightmare and a horrible, there was extraordinary human suffering. And uh, and he is trying. I mean, he was quite, it's quite clear. This, this we do know, that he understood at the time that that Hayek, the Hayek's version of the Austrian theory of, of boom and bust was the main theory he had to, to counteract. It wasn't monetarism. It was, well, no, there, 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 there was a monetarism. Monetary disequilibrium theory of Clark Warburton and uh, uh, back then, which, which, which was something of a, it wasn't Austrian, but certainly wasn't Keynesian. But, you know, John, again, John Hicks, who was uh, a young, brilliant economist at the time, Hicks is on record as saying that, um, you know, right when Keynes's book was published, that there was a time when no one, no economist knew which theory would eventually win out, Hayek or Keynes, Hayek or Keynes. Of course, Keynes Keynes won. So it isn't as if the Hayekian theory of the trade cycle was this completely lunatic, bizarre, unworthy theory. Or it was shown to be flaw false. No, no. It had been shown it, it was it was there was a logical no. inconsistency. Or. And another, another another thing to say, because I want to get this in before for our, our time is over. You know, Hayek in his Nobel lecture, uh, 1974 Nobel lecture, The Pretense of Knowledge, uh, he in fact argued, I think with some justification, that uh, the Keynesianism does lend itself more to modern economic tools. And by using aggregates, you know, we can regress aggregate A against aggregate B in a way that you can't uh, do econometrics uh, in any practical way with the Austrian trade cycle theory because it, it, it's this theory about how millions of different prices <laughs> are getting all distorted relative to one another. Uh, uh, people have tried to test empirically the Austrian trade cycle theory um, 
I don't think that this, the results one way or the other are very strong because it's an inherently difficult thing to test using using um, modern economic methods. I, I I know you want to talk about this one other thing, but let me yeah, just say, re 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 real 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 quickly though. I I want to recommend. Just that, that some, lecture. <laughs> well, some well, I think the pretense of knowledge is a great place to begin. If you want to get, you want to dip your toe into Austrian trade cycle theory, you can read the pretense of knowledge again. Hayek's Nobel Prize lecture. It's, it's available online, free. At the Nobel. We'll, we'll put a link. Uh, yeah, there. yeah. Um, but other books, uh, other works, or authors that I think are important on this issue. Uh, uh, Roger Garrison has a wonderful book that came out in 2001, I believe, called Time and Money. Uh, the Universals of Macroeconomic Theorizing. Roger is a fantastically clear writer and deep thinker uh, on these issues. Steve Horowitz, uh, former student here at George Mason. Steve has a book, it uh, was published in 2000, called Micro Foundations in Macroeconomics, an Austrian Perspective. Um, Jerry O'Driscoll, his 1977 uh, dissertation at UCLA was published well, it was published in 1977. It's a book entitled Economics as a Coordination Problem. It's not on on the trade cycle theory only. It's just on Hayek's, Hayek's theory about how the, the economic problem is one of coordination. And that when we look at aggregates, uh, we miss that, the, the importance of the coordination going on. And, uh, uh, and so that, those are just a, a few of the places I think it would be useful to start if people are interested in Understanding uh, the theory, none, none of these, none of these books, you know, me bangs you over the head, saying, you know, with oh, we're right, you're wrong, you know, Keynes was a fool. That none of them take that that view. It's just a really these are these are these are works that take seriously the enterprise that Hayek understood economics should pursue, uh, explaining how explaining macroeconomics in this Lindalian way uh, as a coordination problem. Uh, I want to close with this issue that that we just mentioned. Uh, uh, you and I talked about earlier for this podcast, and let me let me frame it this way: There's a big debate right now about how we got into the mess we're in. Uh, some people think it was the monetary authorities, and a lot of non-Austrians, a lot of Austrians and non-Austrians are blaming uh, Alan Greenspan or the Fed. Uh, others are claiming it was financial malfeasance, Wall Street greed. That tore down the financial sector and then spilled over into the real economy. Uh, some people are saying, and we'll be talking to them in the near future, I hope, that it was just the housing sector. The housing sector, partially distorted by the monetary policy, uh, grew too big, too fast, and when it busted, uh, it inevitably had dislocation associated with it through all kinds of effects. Um, so people disagree about how we got into the mess. And uh, that's a reality of the state of modern macroeconomics and finance, et cetera. It could be just a statement about the unique nature of this particular episode we're in the middle of. Um, there's also debate about how to get out of it. So uh, I think a lot of people, regardless of what they see as the cause, also are honing in on particular – Solutions uh, that the that the monetary authorities, for example, have to be more aggressive. Hard to imagine they could be any more aggressive than they've been so far, but I guess they could. Uh, and so that's one standard way to get out of the mess. We need proactive monetary policy uh, that'll that'll eventually work. Others, the more Keynesian approach is to say, uh, well, no, the problem is a, a collapse in aggregate demand, and only government can come in and fill the gap, get aggregate demand back to its old level. Uh, Underlying all these views is this idea that we have to do something, uh, and it's better to do something than nothing. And you have recently written about the temptation to that to that viewpoint and the seductive nature of that. So I'd like you to talk about why uh, that might not be right, because I I think you and I are both eager, and I think most Austrians are eager to let the system, I would say, repair itself, that for whatever the cause is of the expansion, the overexpansion in housing and the overexpansion of various – of debt, whether you want to blame it on the monetary policy or not, that until that gets fixed, we're not going to get healthy again. Too many solutions seem to be obsessed with trying to maintain that 
unrealistic uh, set of, of levels. But talk, talk about the, the psychological uh, impulse to do something. Well, I think it's, it, it, it's, it's clearly there, and we all, we all share it. Uh, problem, let's intervene and do something. But look, that's the, that is one of the, I think, great truths of economics, not just from the Austrian perspective, but you know, from, the, from the classic Chicago perspective, the Swedish perspective. E economies work to the extent that the millions of individuals, consumers and producers, investors, are all, that, that their actions and plans are coordinated with each other. And the price system is the thing that coordinates these plans and actions in general, not perfectly. It doesn't have to be perfect, contrary to what some people say. So in my view, the, the, the only way the economy can be restored to health is, for, is to let that coordination practice, policy, uh, coordination take place. And intervening, throwing money at it, whether it be through monetary policy, whether it be through fiscal stimulus, will only distort these prices further, will only prevent the adjustments necessary to bring the coordination back into place. But people say, oh, but that's not doing anything. And one response to that is, no, 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 it is doing something. It's just, but you're not seeing it. You're letting many millions of individuals each look at their own place in the world, use their own unique knowledge of time, place, and circumstance to say, now, what can I do to make my situation better? Whereas if you have, you know, government doing something, you're substituting one big doer for the millions, billions of smaller doers on the ground. And so the first thing to say is it's not clear that if the government just says, okay, we're not going to do anything, you know, we, the government, are not going to do anything. That doesn't mean we're not, that, that nothing's, nothing's being done. Millions of people are doing things that should be done. Um, and many of them will make mistakes, but, you know, having mistakes made each by billions of individuals is much better than having a mistake made by a big giant individual who's who's system wide uh and people but but a lot of people can't imagine it they say well you know i gee i just just can't imagine that how could these individual have, actions and you know so i in in this column that you mentioned it's not a perfect analogy but i say you know imagine going back 200 years to america you go back to 1809 and you find yourself in philadelphia or new york and you, you you know you convince people that you're from the 21st century and you start telling them about the, st the uh, uh, state of personal transportation in the 21st century. What's an automobile? And you describe an automobile to your 1809 friends. And for you, you're just describing something that's perfectly mundane. To them, you're describing this barely imaginable wonder. Uh, and, but, but you tell them, and they believe you because you're an honest guy, you, you convince them that well, you know, but by the time 2009 comes along, even before, but certainly by the time 2009 comes along, this is an everyday occurrence. Right? The auto, you know, people have automobiles; they take, they, they yawn at them. It's not a, it's not a big. It's like seeing stars in the sky or leaves on the trees, right? They're 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 everywhere. And and but I think what would most impress your friends from 200 years back is when you tell them, you know, this industry started to emerge about 100 years from now, early 20th century, and no one planned it. And yet, to have it work requires immense amounts of coordination. Insurers, steel producers, ball-bearing producers, workers, oil road refineries. builders, oil refiners, just countless types of people. And, and no one planned yet it all comes together in, a, in an incredibly... Even despite today's problems, by the way, an incredibly complex working system of coordination that no one planned. So I, I use that example saying, look, just because you can't imagine, and no one could, you, you can't imagine how massive amounts of successful co productive coordination can emerge, doesn't mean that massive amounts of successful productive coordination won't emerge. We have evidence all around us that massive amounts of successful production, uh, successful and productive coordination emerged, unplanned. And for the very same reason, I think, because I can't imagine, I can't tell you the details of how uh, uh, co coordination that will get the economy back onto its feet, to use a you know, current metaphor, how, how that will happen. Just because I might, I, and I can't imagine it in any detail. You can't imagine it in any detail. Ben Bernanke can't imagine. No one can Im imagine it in any detail. That doesn't mean that, that we should say, oh, therefore it's not going to happen, so we need to have government you know, inject fiscal 
uh, a stimulus or increase the money supply or or do whatever or the other uh, centrally planned interventions that are being proposed. A lot of things we can't imagine that happen all the time. And I, I have very great confidence that uh, the relatively simple, rel- compared to, say, structuring an auto industry, the relatively simple amount of, of uh, coordination and, you know, in getting people's spending, consumer spending patterns up to where they ought to be, given their true preferences and given resource constraints. Right? Yeah. Uh, that doesn't strike me as being uh, something that we should say, oh, well, that's something that, that the market can't handle. That's something that must be planned or at least stimulated by the state. I don't see that at all. Well, I, I think the reason that our, um, our viewpoint has the, uh, is on the defensive is, is a perception that in the 1930s, that's what Hoover advocated. That Hoover said, "Stand still, don't do anything, and the law fix itself." Of course, that's just historical. That's historical nonsense. Hoover didn't say any such. He, Hoover was a very interventionist president, certainly uh, by his standards of his day. Uh, yeah. And um, but that is the. I think that's the mythology that makes it harder for those of us who would like to see the government uh, put. As I like to call it when you're in a hole. Stop. First lesson: stop digging, or at a minimum, put the shovel down for a while. And you know, I'd like to see. Since uh, March of 13 months ago, we started shoveling with Bernanke and Paulson and Bush, and we continue to shovel with Geithner, uh, Obama, and Bernanke, and I, I wish we'd at least put the shovel down. But um, – and I think part of it comes back to our you know, earlier historical discussion of the 30s. When you have an historical event that is, that is unique, as the Great Depression was – and perhaps as our current situation will turn out to be, certainly unique with respect to data. There was a, a depression of, magnitude, of large magnitude in 1894, uh, but we didn't have a lot of good data. So we don't have a lot of, uh, of understanding of what caused it still, and a lot of it ends up being ex post storytelling, and whoever tells maybe the best stories is the person who wins, not necessarily the person who's got truth on their side, when trying to explain a unique event. And let's not forget, there was a huge economic downturn in 1920. Yeah. Uh, and Warren G. Harding, in fact, was much more of a do-nothing president uh, than – do-nothing in the sense of the government doing nothing – than was Herbert Hoover. And no one thinks back on the 1920 – most people don't even know there was a 1920 turnout. It was very deep. Uh, and by 1921, the end of 1921, it was history. Um, and that, of course – did not replay itself 10 years later. Well, to be continued, I'm sure. My guest today has been Don Boudreau of George Mason University. Don, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Always a pleasure, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.